I want to talk a little bit more about service this morning and about our community of people. Because Renaissance is not this building, though it's incredible. Renaissance is all of us. It's the community of people. That word church means the called out ones, the ones whom Jesus has lifted from one way and put onto another. And that's what we're trying to be here at Renaissance, a community of believers who are on mission for God. Our mission statement as a church is on the screen behind me. We are building disciples who invite and inspire others to love and serve Jesus together. That's our hope, to love and to serve together, to do that as we build other people up to do the same. And so this morning, uh, I want to look a little bit more at this. We're going to learn from Jesus, who's the one who teaches us how to build others up, how to love, and how to serve. And so we're going to look at a story that Jesus taught in the Gospel of Matthew. It comes during his final sermon. Uh, it was right before Jesus was crucified, and Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven and its return. And he's trying to equip his disciples to live in the time in between. He knew that he was going to go to the cross. He knew he had to die, that one day he would be resurrected and he would go back to be with the Father. He told his disciples this over and over and they didn't seem to get it or understand. But Jesus also knew he was coming back because he has unfinished business here. He has work that he wants to perfect. And in the in-between, the church would be the people entrusted with Jesus' mission of sharing God's good news his gospel, that God has lovingly drawn near to us when we were yet far away. That is the mission that we have as a church. And that's what Jesus uh, is trying to teach his disciples in this passage. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn it to Matthew chapter 25 and put your finger on verse 14 with me. Jesus is teaching by telling stories. And he begins his story, for it is as if a man going on a journey summoned his servants and entrusted his property to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. Then he went away. Are there any grammar nerds in here? Anybody who, if I said antecedent to the pronoun, you would immediately go, yes, I know what that means. I see you, Grace Narciso. Incredible. Uh, Grace is an eighth grader, and she knows what that means. That's incredible. If you're a grammar nerd like me, you'll realize we're picking up in the middle of one of Jesus' sermons, one of uh, the middle of his thing that he's trying to teach. This story is part of his larger teaching on the kingdom of heaven, and our clue is the phrase, for it is as if. There's no obvious antecedent to this pronoun. The subject of the story is not clear. Jesus just lumps right into the middle of it. But this is because Jesus has already been teaching about what he's teaching about. And so, like good detectives, when we're reading scripture and we come up against something that's confusing, we should check the larger context. If we go back a little bit, we'll find that Jesus has been teaching how to wait for the kingdom of heaven to return. He's already taught two stories on this earlier in this chapter. The first, the kingdom of heaven will return unexpectedly, like a boss checking in on you at work. Have you ever had that experience before when a boss shows up and 
you are trying to look like you're working, but really the Mets game is up on the left screen and your work is on the right. <laughs> My boss in college used to do that to me all the time. The second story that Jesus tells is that the kingdom of heaven uh, might take a little bit longer than we expect. So, so we should be prepared. Like bridesmaids waiting for the bridegroom who have extra oil, we should be prepared. This story is about a master who goes away on a journey. And he needs someone to look after his property, so he entrusts it to his servants. He gives them a set amount of money, five, two, and one talents, and then gives them the responsibility to shepherd it. And then he leaves. Given to his servants according to their own ability for them to steward and to be responsible for. Does anyone know what a talent was? A talent was the largest unit of monetary value in the ancient world. It was worth between 15 and 30 years of a laborer's wages. So these uh, servants of this master are given an incredible amount of money to shepherd. One scholar estimated it's about $3.1 million for the servant who receives five talents. The servant who received two got about $1.2 million, and the servant who received one still received over $600,000 that's a lot of money. And can you imagine receiving that if you only make like $15,000 a year? That's a staggering amount of responsibility to be given. And if you notice, the master doesn't give it to them. He uses a different word. He entrusts it to them. The property is still the master's property. It hasn't exchanged hands in a transaction it was, it was put into the servants to look after for the master to pull back out one day. They still bear responsibility ultimately to the master for what they do with the property. In effect, it's like a sheriff deputizing a townsperson when there's a crisis. The master needs someone else to look after his property when he leaves. And so he deputizes his servants and says, you're in the game now. Look after my property. In his stead, they're to make the decisions with what to do with the property, to try and steward it wisely, like the master would. Just as the deputy bears responsibility to the sheriff when he comes back in town, so too do the servants bear responsibility to the master for their actions. If you think about it, this is a large act of trust on the part of their master. He gives his servants this property to steward, and then he departs. Those of us who've invested uh, in someone else's business or entrusted our money to someone to invest for us know the responsibility that that is and the act of faith it is in the person to whom you give your money. It opens you up to risk. It's exposing and it leaves the possibility that it might not work out. But here's the thing. The master didn't just entrust his money to anyone. Neither should we, frankly. Don't do that. The master chooses the people whom he is entrusting his money into. He's chosen his servants, and he has given them responsibility according to their own ability. The master chose the servants he knew, and he gave them responsibility that he thought they could bear, because the master knows the servants. He knows what they're capable of managing. He's seen what they've done on his estate. He knows that they can bear the things that he gives them, and because God is the perfect master, he gives talents perfectly. He does this with us. 
He knows us better than anyone else in the world knows us. He knows what we're capable for, and he knows what we're limited in. And God gives talents according to our own ability. He's entrusted each one of us with talents, abilities, and things that he's given us because he knows us. This story is actually where we get our English word talent from. People took the Greek word talenta and brought it into English and expanded its meaning. No longer is it about the money that you possess, but it includes everything. Your talents are all of the things that God has given you and entrusted you, things that he's given you to steward and shepherd, things that he's given us to invest, because each one of us bears the responsibility of someone who has been entrusted with talents. We stand alongside of these servants in this story, called by the master, entrusted with a gift. All of us have been called to serve Jesus, but not all of us have been gifted the same because God is a God of diversity. We celebrate that as the church, that we are not carbon copies of one another. That's an incredible thing as I look around the room and I see all of the different people of Renaissance Church. We're all so different, but we each have the same responsibility to steward the talents that God has given us for his glory. The Apostle Paul reminds us this in 1 Corinthians 12. He writes, Now, concerning spiritual gifts, brothers and sisters, I do not want you to be uninformed. Now, there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit, and there are varieties of services, but the same Lord, and there are varieties of activities, but it is the same God who activates them in everyone. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. All of these are activated by one and the same Spirit, who allots to each one individually, just as the Spirit chooses. God has done a masterpiece in you, each one of you. One of my favorite things to tell our students is that God did a good thing when he made you, unique, alone, as he is, as he made you. You are more incredible than Van Gogh's A Starry Night or the Beatles' Abbey Road. And if you think uh, a different Beatle album is the best album ever, we can talk later. God did a really good thing when he made you, when he gave you talents that are unique to you. Because they're all gifts of the same spirit, gifts given for the common good and to be used for God. So take a minute, think about the things that make you unique, the things that are you. What are the things that you're gifted at doing? The big things you're gifted at, the small things. What do you possess in this stage of life that Jesus has gifted you? It's probably different than it was 10 years ago. And ask yourself the question, what am I doing with my talents? Because God gave us our talents for a purpose, to steward them like he would, and to trust him that he gave us talents that we can steward well. But it raises the question, how do we steward them? What does that look like? Well, Jesus continues his story in Matthew 12 to answer our questions. And he shares with us that we have two options. We can in risk investing them or we can bury them and not do anything with them. Look at verse 16 with me. 
the one who received five talents went off at once and traded with them and made five more talents. In the same way, the one who had two talents made two more talents. But the one who had received the one talent went off and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. It can be scary, overwhelming to think about where we should invest, how we should invest our talents. To put them to work is an act of risk, and it's something that can catch us out. Or for some of us, we might not even know we have talents that God wants to use until we actually risk investing them. It might even be tempting to play it safe, to not risk too much, to bury our talents in the ground. What's interesting is in the ancient times, what the one servant did who received a talent and buried it was actually a pretty sensible thing to do. You didn't want to risk too much in the market, so you went and you buried a hole and you put it down. Now your money would never depreciate, you would never lose it in a bad deal, and it would be safe from anyone taking it from you because only you knew where you put it. If you wanted to keep something safe, you would bury it. This is why we would hear stories of buried treasure, things like that great hordes of wealth buried because people wanted to keep it safe. But Jesus teaches us to do the opposite, to invest our talents, to risk them. Let me share a story with you of someone who actively invested his talents for God's sake. When we go to camp at Hume Lake in the summer, one of the best nights of the week is the talent show. Would you students agree with that? Rebecca, you put your head in your hands. <laughs> I think it's great. Some of the talents are so bad, they're cringeworthy and they make you do this, but it doesn't matter because the purpose is not the students doing an incredible thing. It's not about someone nailing the perfect rendition of Let It Snow. What it's about is celebrating each student's individual talents. To, to see them as God sees them, people who have incredible gifts that they want to share. But sometimes we come across a talent so unique and incredible that your surprise is matched only by your awe. And this summer at middle school camp, that happened. A small sixth grader was the last student to perform. And the acts had been pretty good so far. The crowd was really excited. We were all getting tired. And a small sixth grader walked up with a towel over his shoulder and stood at the front. And he put his towel down, and then he slipped his shoes off, and he left them right in front of his towel. And then he stood in his towel and faced the audience. And he looked over, and he nodded at the MC. At this point, we were all very confused. And then he put his head down, once the music started playing, and kicked up into a headstand. Now, that alone is impressive. Not many people can do a headstand. When I try, I seem to tip over each way. And he held it. And we all started clapping, and the crowd assumed that was his talent. But what happened next blew my mind. And I've been going to camps for 10 years in the summer. I've never seen someone do something like this. He lowered his feet one at a time to his shoes, and he put his shoes on while in a headstand. I mean, it was insane. We have a picture of it. This is a still from a video where it's just bouncing up and down because everybody in the room is going crazy. It was, it was incredible. But while everybody was cheering, his mom was standing in the back of the room weeping. 
and she was filming her son do something she, A, didn't know he could do, and B, was standing there weeping because their entire group, which had been plagued by infighting and separation, was now surrounding her son, lifting him up, throwing him up in the air, celebrating him. This one young man, his decision to invest his talents for God's sake resulted in their community of people from their church going from being separate to together. Our talents don't have to look like strumming a guitar in front of people or singing. This one little boy put his shoes on while doing a headstand, which was incredible. Don't get me wrong, someone call Cirque du Soleil and tell them about this kid. But what a small act of service that reaped a bigger reward. Throughout the rest of the week, that student's church was celebrating their one uh, kid who, who did the headstand. He became a celebrity around the camp. He became the headstand who put his shoes on kid. And everybody said, I know him. Uh, we're together. We're friends. And this kid's going, we are? We are. Investing our talents means risking. And this kid certainly risked. But the reward that God brought was incredible. Jesus' desire for us is to actively steward the things that he's given to us to put them to work. And that trust that he's given us comes with a responsibility, a responsibility to actively steward his talents because there the master will return. And Jesus teaches us this. We're not gifted with the talents to do whatever we want. One day the master will come back and ask us what we did with our talents. This sermon that Jesus is teaching is sometimes called the judgment sermon because it's about uh, not just the time in between Jesus is leaving and Jesus is coming back, but what would happen when Jesus came back. He wants to influence our present action with a future story. So look again at the text. Matthew teaches us this in verse 19. After a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. The master comes back because he wouldn't be a good master if he didn't come back and settle accounts with those in whom he's entrusted his property. He checks to see if they handled it the way that he asked them to, because he's a good master. This teaches me that Jesus wants his followers to live as though God will settle accounts with us, that God cares about what we do with our lives, and that one day God will ask us to answer with what we did. It tells me that the work that followers of Jesus have to do is important to God. His investment in his property matters to him because we matter to him. And our work is to go spread the good news of Jesus Christ, the God who is once far off has now come near. Think about that. Our talents matter to God. Our ability to do a headstand and put our shoes on matters to God so much so that he wants to make sure that we use those talents wisely, that we share them, that we invest them, that we steward them like Jesus would. That alone is incredible to me, that Jesus cares about my talents so much that he checks in on me. But notice, there are two different ways that the servants dealt with their talents, two invested and one buried. And Jesus uses this to show us the two possible ways our accounting can go with God dependent upon how we choose to handle the things that he has given us. First, we'll look at the two servants who invested Jesus' talents, or invested the master's talents. 
beginning in verse 20. Then the one who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five more, saying, Master, you handed over to me five talents. See, I have made five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. And the one with the two talents also came forward, saying, Master, you handed over to me two talents. See, I have made two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and trustworthy slave. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. At the accounting, the servants tell the master they had doubled his investment. And the master responds to each with exactly the same wording. Well done, good and trustworthy servant. You have been trustworthy in a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. No matter how we value our talents, God values them differently than us. If we think they're not important, God often thinks they're more important. The things that he's given us, he wants us to use, whether it's headstands or uh, playing music or speaking or talking to people or being someone who welcomes people into your home. That's something God wants you to steward. And faithful and active investment results in praise and greater responsibility, and it also results in God drawing us near. The hope of the Christian, the message of the good news is that God drew near to us and draws us near. And at the end of time, when God comes back and he accounts for us, the thing that we want is to be drawn near to the Father. So that's what I want, and I hope that's what you want as well, is to be near God. So in order to do that, we should be a people who invest wisely, who continue to share our gifts, who invest our talents to the glory of God. That means if you're a carpenter, do carpentry for the glory of God. If you're a mother at playgroup, let your parenting be a reflection of God's love. If you're a lawyer, a teacher, a student, or a retiree, use the things that you have faithfully for God's glory. And then, Trust that God will draw you near and he will invite you to enter into his joy. If God is our master, our leader, our true guide through life, then the potential to bring him joy and to share in it is our motivation to act. But we also look at the life of Jesus, someone who had been given many talents. I had a professor in seminary who said, Jesus was the best at everything he ever did, the most talented human we've ever had. He's the best neuroscientist and the best musician and the best carer of young children that we've ever seen. We should look to Jesus who used everything and God used that to bless the world. But in the same way, the master rewards active stewardship, he condemns inactive stewardship. And this is important for us to hear. Jesus wants you to be active, but the other option is to be inactive. And Jesus has a word for that. Look at the master's response to the slave who hid his talent in the ground, who played it safe. In verse 24, Jesus begins, Then the one who had received the one talent also came forward, saying, Master, I knew that you were a harsh man, 
reaping what you did not sow and gathering where you did not scatter seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, have what is yours. But his master replied, you wicked and lazy slave. You knew, did you, that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I did not scatter? Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and on my return, I would have received what was my own with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to the one with ten talents. For all those who have, more will be given, and they will have an abundance. But from those who have nothing, even what they have will be taken away. As for this worthless servant, throw him out into the utter darkness, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Did you notice that? The servant accounts for his actions by returning the talent to the master that he was given. And he said, I was afraid to risk your talent, so I did nothing with it. I did the safe thing and I put it in the ground because I was afraid of what you might do if I, if I lost it. The servant was tasked with shepherding the master's property, like the master would have, investing it wisely because he had been entrusted with it. And he had been entrusted with the responsibility that came with it. Instead of doing the sensible thing, putting it in a bank, making there be a little bit of interest on it, he buried it, lest he lose it in the market and face his master's harshness. This is a moment of irony. The very thing he was afraid of happening that motivated his action ended up being the thing that happened. His master is upset with him, disappointed by his explanations and excuses, and not pleased with his action. And the master responds, the servant should have put it into the bank, done something with it, instead of doing nothing. At least it would have been growing with interest. But he didn't. He played it safe. Sometimes it's helpful to read a passage like this in a different translation. We get a different light. We tend to use the NRSB when we preach, but I like to look at the message when I'm trying to get a different perspective. Eugene Peterson translates this passage a little differently. He translates it, his master was furious. That's a terrible way to live. It's criminal to live cautiously like that. If you knew that I was after the best, why did you do less than the least? The least you could have done would have been to invest the sum with the bankers, where at least I would have gotten a little interest. So take the talent and give it to the one who risked the most, and get rid of this play it safe who won't go out on a limb. Harsh words for those who sit on their talents, who don't do anything with them, who bury them in the soil of their life and choose to put them away. The danger in playing it safe is that one day we might find ourselves pushed away from God, not drawn toward him. The consequence of our inaction is a lack of relationship with the master at the end of time. But there's an important thing to note about this story. Oftentimes, this story is used to preach doom and gloom over people. Turn, repent, use your salvation or lose it. That is not at all the context for this. Jesus cares. This is why he tells this story. Because he's talking about the future accounting, when the master will come back. We're gathered here today because the master has not yet returned. The invitation hidden within this, the grace hidden within this, is there is still time to wisely invest the master's talents. 
to invest the things that God has given you. This passage was intended to be pointed. It was intended to be a jolt and a call to action, but it was not meant to be a condemnation. We are not the ones who can make that condemnation. That is God's place alone. What God wants from you and from me and from all of us as a church is to steward his talents wisely. That's why we should invest. That's why we are encouraged to invest his talents, not to bury them. The interesting thing is that we are not the ones who are thrown out into the dark, not yet, but there already has been one who was cast out into the darkness. Jesus is preaching this sermon on the precipice of the crucifixion, the moment when he was cast out of the Father's presence, when he became all of our shame and our iniquity, when he bore that on him and was separated from God on our behalf so that one day he might rise again three days later and be reunited. He brought heaven to earth when he came here. He was God who drew near to us. God himself was cast out into the darkness. When we fear about being cast out, we find that Jesus himself was the one who was cast out. So we don't have to be cast out. The invitation is to let this impact our action. To follow Jesus is to be freed up from fearing failure and to instead to be able to risk. We don't have to be afraid of being cast out into the darkness if we have Christ Jesus. We can invest his talents wisely to trust his choice of us to bear his talents, to believe that God did a good thing when he made us and has given us gifts to serve here and now. And then to trust that he'll equip us and continue equipping us as we go out. Jesus told the story to warn and invite and inspire his disciples to act. So I hope that we are a church who chooses to hear and respond to that. So let me offer a single clear invitation. If you are currently burying your talents or sitting on them or wondering where to invest them, invest them here at our church. Invest them into this community. It's not the only way, but it's a way in which God will use your talents to bring an investment, uh, to bring a return, excuse me. Our community here at Renaissance is a volunteer community, which means most of what we do is run by people in our congregation who are not paid to do it. So join us on our mission to see the kingdom expand. Use what you have uh, here. If you can hold a baby or play with a toddler or look after some middle schoolers or volunteer with the sound ministry, if you can do anything like that, if you have a pulse, there's a place for you here at Renaissance, which means all of us can serve in some capacity. And, And that's the best thing. We heard from people in our community who served and were blessed more than they gave out. That's one of the things that God does. He uses our service, not just to bless our community, but to bless us. My hope is that we continue to be a church who invests the things that God has given us in the mission that he has invited us into. And to press on inviting and inspiring others to love and serve Jesus. And this is the important part, together. So let us join our hearts in prayer together and ask God for his help. God, you are gracious beyond anything we could ever imagine. You've done an incredible thing in creating each one of us in your image. 
We thank you that you are the God of diversity. You are the God who has called all people to yourself and created all people and blessed them with a multitude of talents. As we sit here, Lord, would you speak to us? Would you direct our hearts where to serve? Who to serve? What to do with the talents you've given us? Would you help us to see where we've been gifted by the Holy Spirit to serve your kingdom? God, would you give us courage to take that first step? Boldness to believe that we can participate with you in the mission that you've given us. Without you, we can do nothing, but with you, God, we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us. And so, Holy Spirit, we welcome you. We pray, God, that you would move in our worship and you would receive the service of our lives as worship, joyful and glorious unto you. Pray all of these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen.